Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. Hey, you! And welcome to what is already episode 32 of One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. My name's Tony Fletcher. In my professional life, I try and make a living out of writing, and if I can't, then out of other work in music and media. And if all that fails, and even when it succeeds, to be honest, I like to get outdoors and enjoy myself. If you're new to this show, welcome along. We try and take an interesting ride. We do our best to avoid the familiarity of the podcast highway in which every show stays in its lane and the rest stops are full of familiar branded chains. And instead, we take side roads, detours, we go on crazy climbs, and who knows, maybe we do occasionally end up in the metaphorical ditch. But hey, we try and keep it interesting and unpredictable throughout. That said, if you are brand new to this show and you were intrigued by the description of this particular episode, in which I chat with four other people who've also completed the Manitou's Revenge Ultramarathon, which is a 54-mile intense challenge over the Catskill Mountains held at the end of every June, then let me politely suggest you just go back one episode to episode 31 and hear that one first. I interviewed there the race co-director, Mike Sudi, about what's involved in running an ultra, as I coined that show with a deliberate double entendre because Mike's a runner as well as a race director. If you have already heard that episode, then hey, congratulations, you're in the right place. And if you're one of those listeners who delves in and out and you're really not sure about this whole trail running ultramarathon business and you're preparing to dip back out again until I tackle something a little less daunting on another episode, well, hey, Hang on in there. Everybody starts somewhere and none of us, well, almost none of us, jump in at the deep end. It's my hope, in fact, that the talk you're about to hear will not only offer some tips and tricks for those who have a vested interest or may themselves have completed the Manitou's, but will, in the process of sharing our evident camaraderie, distill some of the perverse joy we get from completing a crazy challenge. The aim is not to inspire you to this particular race, not even this particular form of sport, if that's what we want to call it, as much as it is to inspire you to something. And for now, that may just mean getting off the couch to go for a longer walk than usual. Hey, if you do, take the show with you. Now, this was the first time I've hosted a multi-person online video call for One Step Beyond, and there was bound to be a degree of what Americans call inside baseball. I'm sure us Brits call it something else. It won't be inside baseball. Help me out if you know what it is. I did my best to edit out the really deep dive details, but a few remain. And so I feel like I should give you a very quick glossary and just a small bit of background particular to this region and to Manitou's itself. All right. There are three big trail races in the Catskill Mountains. The first and by far the oldest is the Escarpment Trail Run held at the end of each July. It's directed by Dick Vincent, who was featured briefly on this show way back on episode 7, and whose name will come up on this episode. 
Manitou's Revenge came along almost a decade ago now, and like the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon, which is held in early October, it's co-directed by my last guest, Mike Sudi, with his partner, Charlie Gaydor. You'll hear references to certain parts of Manitou that might be helpful to know up front. Personally, I break the course into four parts. I mean, that's an exercise I find helpful on any long endeavour. First up is the escarpment section, which covers a lot of the same ground as the escarpment trail run. Well, I consider the second section goes up and around the shoulder of Catterskill High Peak, and that brings us to Platte Clove Road. This is the halfway point of Manitou's Revenge. It's where we have our drop bags waiting for us, with perhaps some personal food and drink choice in them, a change of clothes maybe. Some people even switched out their shoes here. And with all the food and medicine on offer, plus the fact that there's a few folding chairs around, it's where most people take their longest break, myself included. It's also where those people having a really bad day are smart to drop out now because there's no other further road intersection until the finish line. The third section is by far the most challenging, even if it is the shortest in actual mileage. It takes us over the significant amount of the Devil's Path, widely proclaimed the toughest trail in the East, certainly in the Northeast, and it includes ascents of four peaks over 3,500 feet, namely Indian Head, Twin with its double hump, Sugarloaf and Plateau. And a couple of the descents off these peaks are treacherous at the best of times, but were especially so in this year's relentlessly high humidity, where the rocks gradually absorbed the moisture in the air and turned instead into a slippery, slidey mess. At the top of Plateau Mountain, we turned south for the final quarter. The frequently heard observation that it's all downhill from here is frankly complete tosh. There are at least two difficult climbs left and many of us will complete those after nightfall. But they're admittedly nothing quite as challenging as those we've just encountered on the Devil's Path. From the last of these summits, Mount Tremper, it's a straight and steep descent to a mile plus of road into the village of Phoenicia and the finish line. Okay. There are several aid stations on Manitou's Revenge you'll hear reference in order. There are Dutchers Notch, North South Lake, Palinville, Platte Clove, Mink Hollow towards the end of the Devil's Path section, Silver Hollow, and then Willow. The race starts at 5am with waves every five minutes, which means, of course, nobody gets a good night's sleep in advance. And you'll notice I do not talk about our finish times because, frankly, anybody who finishes this is a winner. The only exception is a time volunteered by Cheryl Wheeler, who is the closest we have here to an elite runner, albeit one who is absolutely as unpretentious as they come. Cheryl's is the first voice that you will hear. She is 58 years old. She has done uh, six of the eight Manitou's Revenges that have been held so far. Uh, Unfortunately, she didn't complete her race this year. That was not due to conditions on the trail, but just due to something personal. And she has completed a number of other ultramarathons as well, as you will hear. The next person up is Max Gruner. He is 36 and this was his first Manitou's finish. I also asked people if they had a favorite ultra memory and he said his was running a neighborhood 50k around a 0.4 mile loop with his friend Chris Gallo, whose name will also come up in this show, during the lockdown and raising $2,000 for his aunt's cancer charity fund, the Rosemary D. Gruner Cancer Fund. Uh, I remember Chris saying to me that the one great thing about such a small loop just outside his house was he was never more than 0.2 of a mile from a bathroom. So there is that. The third voice that you will hear is going to be Benno Rawlinson. 
Benno has rowed across the Atlantic as part of a team that made the fastest crossing of 2013 and spent 70 days in the Arctic attempting to ski the Northwest Passage unsupported and unaided. Benno is just 34. That makes him the baby of this particular group. He says this was his first, but hopefully not his last Manitou's revenge. And the fourth of our guests on this show is Alana Moss. She is 45. She's completed one Manitou's Revenge, but she has volunteered at two of them, including this year at Silver Hollow, as we'll hear. I also wanted to make sure I had a volunteer on board. All right, that's a longer introduction than usual, but I did want you to be prepared for the lovely chat that follows just as we try and prepare for an event like this ourselves. So with that, I invite you to do whatever it is you want to do while listening to this show and get ready to join us as we all go. One step So how did each of you come to this sport, if that's what we can call this activity? Well, I, I um, just wanted to go longer because I did escarpment once and then I was like, wow, I love that. So then Massanutten Mountain was my first 100 miler and that was 80% like escarpment. And I found that you don't have to go very fast. You just have to endure, which is great. And you get to eat lots of food at aid stations it's great you get weary and then you can't get any more tired than that and you keep going and you can walk when you want that's what i love about it i think that undersells you a little bit cheryl because you very quickly from i think getting into this quite late in life turned into a real top level ultra runner and i wonder like as far as i know you finished really high up the field in some really serious races um what's the What's the secret? Well, I've heard from Steve Schellenkamp and other people like Dick Vincent, good genetics. But I have to tell you, I'm a lazy runner. And what that means is I don't do 100 miles a week or more. I barely get by with whatever I need to do the 100 miler or the 50 miler or whatever it is that I'm doing. So that in itself, I think, kind of saved my body. Plus, I think the way of training If you do 80% of your training, there's a book out there, that primal endurance. And when I read it, I said, oh, I I could have written this book. Well, some of it anyways, because it's all about things like that. Things like mostly training really slow. And then whatever speed you're going to be, you're going to be really fast anyways. So again, for an outsider who says, you people are crazy, but I'm interested enough to listen to this. What's the appeal? When I, like growing up, I always played um, organized sports. I played a ton of football, Um, not your kind of football, Tony, American football, sorry. Um, But uh, so football, baseball, I skied over the winter, um, played like basketball, did wrestling track, pretty pretty much tried every single organized sport out there except for running and um, ended up focusing on football and played in college. So I think I've always had that... um, competitive spirit. And I started running to lose weight from playing football because I was an offensive lineman and graduated college at 310 pounds and quickly realized I don't need to carry 310 pounds around with me. Um, So I trained for a tough mutter and I was like, oh, I kind of like this running stuff now. Um, So after the tough mutter, I started doing 5Ks, 10Ks, did my first half marathon, 
I think about eight years ago, because my son had just been born um, and then did that. And I was like, yeah, I'm never going to do a marathon. That's a long time. Then I did my first marathon on the road. And um, I also work with uh, Chris Gallo, who kept talking to me and saying, you know, there's this race out there called the escarpment race, like do your marathon and get into escarpment. And then so I did that, got into escarpment and I was like, wow, this, this trail running stuff's pretty cool. Um, I like to just see how far I can push myself. And like, when, like, especially in this year's Manitou with every single climb on devil's path, I'm making an exit strategy. And then all of a sudden you can just kind of push past that and you're still going. So. That's a really good summary. I'm just going to confirm that you said what I thought you said. I've known you a few years, Max. Did you say you were 310 pounds not long ago? Yeah. Oh, how, many, yeah. how many years back? Um, that was uh, about 15 years ago now. Right. And what do you weigh now, so, Max? Um, right now I'm around 190 pounds. Right. I think that's a phenomenal just advertisement for running anyway. Mm. Um, congratulations. Congratulations on your, your first finish. Uh, Benno, I met you Thank out you. there on the on the course i think we bonded over over the accent uh that was your first time on the course as best i know what did you make of the devil's path what did you make of the uh, the, the race overall and what got you into the ultra running years and years ago um i saw on a show called trans world sport uh some people doing the marathon de Saba. um and at that point i was like oh that looks really cool um, and I was a terrible runner. I was like a, a prop in rugby. So that's, I guess, the equivalent of a, a frontline person in American football. So pretty, uh, big, pretty big and slow. So I was using running initially to kind of get my fitness up so I could play better at rugby or cricket or any other kind of like team sport. Uh, and then just with moving around, kind of like decided that I would, my first ultra would be the marathon de Saba. So I hadn't done a marathon. I think my longest trail race at that point had been about sort of 10 kilometers. Um, and just thought I'll enter that and then I'll work backwards. So that was kind of my entrance into, uh, so I had about, uh, sort of 18 months to train for the marathon de Salva. So I sort of had some ultras in between. Um, but that was my kind of intro into the ultra running world. And I've just really enjoyed of using it as an opportunity to get around and see different places, uh, meet different people. And uh, yeah, it's been a really good kind of excuse to kind of do those things. The Marathon de Sable, if I've got that right, is that the one in the Sahara that is several days? Yeah, it's uh, 115 miles over six, seven days, depending on how long uh, you take each day. Alana, you were saying that you've done Manitou's complete of it only once, but I do put you in the ultra running category. I know I've seen you out at the other long distance races in the in the Catskills, and uh, maybe you've maybe you've done others beyond that. What what for you is the attraction about this particular activity? Well, um, I have to say the people. I mean, I guess at its core, ultra running really is a solitary event. But like the the people you find on the trails, running trails, are some of the best people out there. So I really um, just can't get enough of hanging out with cool people like that. <laughs> I started off kind of like Max was saying um, with the escarpment trail run. I was a hurdler and high jumper in college. So like the idea of doing anything more than a 5K was absolutely absurd. There was no way I was ever going to do a marathon. Um, 
let alone an ultra marathon. But the lure of getting me out there and the cat skills for the escarpment kind of uh, inspired me to to dig deep and go farther. So, Cheryl, I wanted to ask you um, again, as somebody who's done a lot of ultra running, I'm really placed extremely well. What uh, you're saying you got into it from escarpment. What age would you say you were? Where were you in life when you really took on the ultra running? What was your background before that other than genetics? Well, yeah, before that, um, I don't know. I just always like to move around and be active, ride a bike, swim. I love to swim, actually. And then um, and I was running, started when I was 34 or 36. I can't remember. It was either 1998 or 1999 I started. And somebody said at one of the local races, hey, you could do a marathon. I was like, I've heard of them. So I actually <laughs> did one, Steamtown in the fall, qualified me for Boston, and escarpment the next spring. And I had been running less than a year at that point. So I did both. And at escarpment, I had never been there before up in those trails. And I didn't know what trail sneakers were. And so I ran the race on a rainy day with worn out sneakers from the Boston road marathon in April. And then it's in July. Escarpment is. And I just, after the first mountain, I loved it. And I did really well. I was under four hours. I was 348, I think. And I just fell in love with like the trails. So then um, when, so then I started doing some more, I had a, a problem with my heart at one point It was damaged. The muscle was damaged in 2004. And at that point I'd only done one 50 miler Vermont. So it was mostly road you could say, or trail, but you know, mostly dirt roads. So at that point I said, after I get better and not everybody gets better from what I had, I want to do either a hundred miler or I want to do an Ironman. So a hundred miler seemed easy and more feasible because you don't have to have as much equipment and training and all that. So um, I did Massanut Mountain, got in, and I was second woman the first year. So I, but my sturdy body was made for doing the trails. Now say, if you do a hundred miler on the road that has like repeats and you're on road paved, it's totally different than like Manitou's Escarpment or other trail races that are long distance. So there's ultra running but then there's ultra trail running, which is totally different. That's where I mean, you can walk. You can walk a lot. When I won the race the second year, Massanutten, I was first place woman. I walked probably a quarter of that. And I was the first place woman. And there was women in there that, are, that were good and they walked too. So that's what I mean. It's kind of nice because you get like an average person, if they can get past the, oh, you just do too, way too well. You just run too far for me. If they can get past that and they can say, Hey, I can walk fast. I can train to walk fast for two or three hours. They can put themselves in some mountain race or something that has a liberal time limit. Maybe, maybe they're not going to be fast, but walking, walking is like fast. Walking is the key really to train. You can really get well-trained that way. You're quite right. And this was something that Mike was saying as well. And I think that for anybody who is a really good hiker, somebody who maybe goes out and does a 10 hour hiking day and covers a couple of uh, steep mountains, they are probably better equipped to take on something like this than they might than they might realize, especially yep. if there's a reasonably generous cutoff time. A lot of it is about just just the endurance and the stamina of it. What would your advice be to somebody that wants to get into this? And, and says, all right, you're selling this to me. Do they start with Manitou's? What do they start with? How do they know that they're good for this? I'll say, get out there and start walking. And even if you're just on pavement, find some hills that you can walk up. Everywhere in like this whole area where we live, there's hills. You don't have to go up in the mountains on the trails, but you can. 
find a hill, walk up it as hard as you can, and then walk back down it and do repeats on it. You know, like Overlook Mountain is a great one because the trail is really, you know, a, a carriage road, let's say. And it actually is runnable if you want to run it, but that's not the point. Walk it and just start walking. Everybody can walk. If you can't walk, then probably you're not going to be able to do something like that. But most everybody can walk. Just start walking. Get some poles. You know, you get more bang for your buck for walking purposes of breathing and getting your muscles in shape walking up a hill, I would say. Great answer. Benno? Um, yeah, I think the, the walking advice is like fantastic advice. Um, and uh, then adding to that, I would just say, you know, finding uh, an area or a course that just inspires you that you look at it and be like, oh, I'd love to go and visit that area or I'd love to see that part of, you know, whether it's the Catskills or know, somewhere out in Oregon or, you know, wherever it might be. Um, yeah, finding something that's like inspiring is always helpful. Uh, I've always picked my courses on the areas. I'm like, oh, it's a beautiful area. Or it's a you know, cool trail to check out. Um, so I always try and find like point to point. So I'm sort of constantly seeing something new and different. Great. Alana? Uh, I would say find a local running club. Uh, there are a lot of great running clubs around that, you know, you can start small with just some, some easy road runs and then, um, I know the Albany Running Exchange does a wonderful job introducing people to trails. So if you're interested in trails, you can kind of work your way into it that way. And like Cheryl said, just get out and walk and explore. Great. Max? Um, yeah, one thing that I definitely have done is like tried to basically consume as much information as possible. I like to, like, I love listening to podcasts. I've listened to this one before, Tony. And I, I listened to uh, Cheryl, you were on a podcast, an interview, and I've actually heeded your advice about becoming a good walker. Um, I thought about that quite a bit. Um, so I, li I listened to tons of podcasts, um, watching YouTube videos of people doing, uh, doing ultras. I, I enjoy doing that. And actually kind of a funny story. I was watching one in the morning, getting breakfast ready, and my son, who's eight years old, stopped and looked at it. And he's like, dad, how far have you run before? And at that point I had done the 50 miler. So I said 50 miles and he looks at me and he goes, I think you can go farther. Um, <laughs> so also reading books, like I said earlier, I started off, I think the first running book I read was Born to Run. Um, and then reading Scott Jurek's books, I really enjoyed those um, like Eat and Run and North. Um, and recently I've started, um, I hired Dick Vincent. Um, and just talking to him and like, I mean, he's just an encyclopedia of everything running. Um, and like he was, he would drop me off at a trail and for training runs and like give me ideas. And he's just phenomenal to um, pick his brain and just basically learning from other people, whether it's talking to him personally or through a podcast, YouTube video or book. That's definitely something that's helped me. We're blessed to have Dick Vincent here. He's the race director of the Escarpment. He's been uh, so happy and gracious to see these other long-distance races introduced. And I hired him as a coach four years ago, and he got me through my first Manitou's, and he got me through my first Escarpment under four hours, which uh, uh, Cheryl obviously does for breakfast. But for me, that was the achievement of my life, Cheryl. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, we are. You know, that's also like looking to the experts and sometimes being willing to. Uh, 
uh, paid them for it. Cheryl, you mentioned something uh, there about polls. And I know that Ben was using polls. I know that Max was using polls. Uh, it sounds like you support them. Um, Alana, just quick yes, no. When you did it for three years ago, were you using polls? Never used them. So for you, they're not necessary, I guess. I had one friend try to introduce me to them at one point, and um, it was more or less of a disaster. <laughs> kind of like me trying to run on a treadmill. Like, I don't know why it's so difficult for me, but I, it, it's um, safer for the entire universe that I don't use polls, I think. <laughs> All right. So for those of you who do, what are the advantage of them? I've been downhill skiing since I was about five years old, so I'm used to using poles. And then I was training for, I think it was either a Scartman or Cat's Tail one year, um, probably four years ago or so. And Chris Gallo actually said, why don't you borrow my poles, try them out. And I was going, uh, starting at Overlook, and I was going to go up and then over to the Devil's Path and then back. And I used them, and I couldn't believe how much more power I had going uphill using the poles. Um, and during this year's race for Manitou, I was using them for that. And I had planned on putting them away for the devil's path to use my hands more, but I just kept using them. And then, like you said, Tony, <laughs> towards the end there, where you're kind of stumbling over rocks in the dark, it, I, I couldn't believe like they, they caught me an unbelievable amount of times. Well, Benno, you were using them and you were, yeah. you were clearly pretty effective. I know that you, you posted a very good time. Certainly the poles can't have harmed. So what, what do you see as the advantage there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, similar to Max, it's just um, a bit of added kind of benefit uh, going uphill. Um, I sort of got them for like a hundred miler I was doing a couple of years ago, just to just encourage you, to, encourage me to kind of like use my arms as well um, whilst I was going uphill. And it just, uh, yeah, whether it was kind of like going uphill or going over some rocky terrain just provided either a bit of extra strength or stability. <laughs> um, and yeah, particular manatees, like some of those rocky bits towards the end, like, yeah, my poles probably took a bit of a brunt of me uh, slipping and sliding about. And Cheryl, you, you like to use poles as well, correct? I do. So poles, right from the time I first got them, I used them at Heiner Challenge one time, which is a hard 50K in Pennsylvania. And I didn't train at all with them. I got them like the day before, you know, and put them together. Now my poles, I don't put them together and put them back and, you know, do all that. I have them out, and if I start from the start, I have them at the finish. I use them everywhere. I run with them. I can pull myself along. I go, mostly I use it to go up the mountains. But the only place I don't really use them is the technical downhill. And then I'll just have both of them in one hand and then switch it over after a minute or two or whatever. But the one thing about poles, you have to let your hands hang in the sling. That's the key. You shouldn't grip. If you're gripping like this with every step, it's too much effort. You have to let your hand hang in the sling and let the bottom of your palm or the side of your hand be what is the pivot point for it. That's the key. If you're trying to grip, is you're not doing it right. Well, at least I think. Okay. I, I definitely agree with that because I that's what I do with them. Let my wrist hang in the in the strap and use that as extra leverage. Yep. I think the problem that I'm facing, and, and I'd love your opinions on this, I, what I love to do is run. I'm, I'm a runner, and I think I'm having to learn to adapt that if I do Manitou's again, I have to take this advice that it is really like much more of a long, fast hike, and that the way to do that is to have poles, because I'm always just looking for my opportunity to run. But 
maybe that's the wrong attitude to bring to an ultra like this. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to jump right in. You can definitely run and use the poles. I do it all the time. You can run for miles and miles and miles with those poles. And I have done it. Ask, just ask any of my friends when they, when I have the poles and they see me and I'm running on the parts that are the flat parts. Now the uphill you're hiking, usually you're not running. And that, it doesn't, it doesn't make you a faster person per se. It saves your legs on the uphills, I would say. So then you have more stuff with your legs. But definitely once you get the flats, I mean, I've even used them on the roads before. Um, you're going to wear out your tips faster, get several tips, but whatever. You can, you can run for miles. And you can practice on the road if you want. You don't have to. But you can run with your poles. Being very specific here, Cheryl, are you talking about when you're running that you're literally tapping them on the ground as opposed to putting them under your arm? Correct. I base once I have my poles. Usually in Manitou's, when I get my poles, I don't usually start off with them. I get them about Palinville, have them on the side of the road. Somebody hands them to me, and from that point on, I don't put them away. I don't give them away. I think my fastest time that I had that, that was a thirteen forty six. I had which was four years ago, maybe. Might have been four or five years ago. I think I had the poles, and I was flying down Mount Tremper with the poles. I don't usually do the downhill like that. That's kind of de technical downhill, but I did. And even I hit the road on the road, poles, mile and a half, pulling me along. At this point, we had to say goodbye to Cheryl Wheeler, which was a great shame. I just love her get up and go attitude. As Max referenced, there is a much longer interview with her on another podcast dedicated to ultra running. I'll give you the links to that. In the meantime, we picked up again on the all-important conversation of sustenance. Namely, how do you fuel and sustain yourself when you're getting up before dawn and you're going to be out there for maybe as much as 24 hours? Max, how did you do for food? So this year, I I felt like I did pretty well um, hydration-wise because I definitely didn't feel dehydrated. The one area I should have kept up with more is my salt intake. Um and I've used S caps in the past, especially during escarpment. And just for some reason this year, I didn't use them and really wished I had used them sooner because I didn't start taking salt until I got to North Lake. Um, and so I think I fell behind on my salt for uh, quite a while and then was able to catch back up to it. And um, I think the other weirdest thing ever is I was leaving Platte Clove and I was like, man, I would really love a beer right now. And so I texted, uh, I was with Chris Gallo at that point during the race and he's like, text Mindy, she's going to be at Silver Hollow. So I did. And we showed up there and after being attacked by a Yeti that jumped out of the woods, um, our other buddy, Adam Sense, pulls out two Coors Lights and is like, here you go. And I had two quesadillas and drank not the entire 24-ounce Coors Light, but almost all of it. And within 30 minutes, I felt like a new person. Was that the Yeti or the beer or the Yeti that made that possible? I think, think? it was, I think it was both. So <laughs> definitely I, combination of the two. I am yeah. always happy to go off script, and this was going to come up later. One reason I really wanted you on this show, uh, Alana, is because we don't have successful races without volunteers. And I have volunteered previously twice to, to the last two races at Manitou's. Um, 
you chose this year to volunteer, but you chose to do more than volunteer. And I have a sneaking suspicion that you and the Silver Yeti have never been seen together. Um, <laughs> I cannot confirm or deny that. Yeah. Uh, how does it feel to spend a significant amount of a very, very humid summer's day dressed as a Silver Yeti at an aid station on an ultramarathon? Oh, she's still not going to confirm or deny. <laughs> okay. No, no, I, I, I hear there was a Yeti there. Um, I had to step away to get something from the car. It was a long hike back down to the, the car. So, but I, I, my friends will all tell you that I've never been um, afraid of making a fool of myself. So if there was a Yeti there, I'm sure that Yeti had a really good time and was really happy to make some some runners smile. Although I think that I got an eye roll from Max. I mean, the Yeti <laughs> got an eye roll from Max when he went by. That was, that was my my attempt at a smile, but that's all I can muster <laughs> at that point. Benno, as somebody who uh, would not recognize the uh, Yeti in or in or out of costume, how did it uh, how did it feel for you to get 40, 35 plus miles through a race and come up against a silver Yeti at an aid station. I, I thought it was uh, fantastic. It was just a, a little bit of joy. I think there was some like blow up unicorns as well coming into that mm -hmm. checkpoint as well. It was just, uh, yeah, it was um, something adds to the party. It's sort of, uh, yeah, when volunteers kind of like go that extra mile, it really makes it uh, kind of a special event when you kind of come around the corner and sort of see some of these extra add-ons. So it's not just a come in and, top up with a bit of fuel and then go it was um yeah the volunteers like really made the event it was uh couldn't really have done it without them to be honest you really really can't do it without the volunteers i want to say thanks uh alana for being out there if you can thank your friend the yeti next time you see him or her that would be that would be great as well benno how did you do out there uh how much do you pick up from aid stations how much do you bring with you uh i have a tendency to probably carry far too much with me um, so I, I, I don't know what it is, but food, I'm always worried about what, sort of running out. So I always take too much and sort of extras in case like uh, my sort of palate changes on the day. Um, so like the first half went pretty well. I was using like mostly the stuff I brought with just like the occasional peanut butter and jelly sandwich along the way. And then uh, the second half from like kind of like the mile 30 point. I just wasn't quite judging it quite right. And I think I thought I was always slightly closer to the aid station than I actually was. And so w I wasn't quite eating as much as I should have. And then but the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at each of the aid stations went down a treat and the quesadillas as well. It was uh, yeah, a welcome, welcome treat part of the way through the race. Well, because I'm vegan, I bring a lot of my own food. I kind of want to have my own food. I actually regretted the moment I had some wheat pretzels in North South Lake. I was just like, I didn't need these. I should stick to my own regimen. I think that the thing that I find hardest is trying to figure what you do at four in the morning. I feel like I got this right a few years ago. I, I have a habit of overeating the day before. And then I'm not hungry at four in the morning, but then I just insist on that I need to eat something. And then I'm going out on a sort of full and upset stomach. I think probably the secret is to eat even relatively light the day before so that you can put food in your stomach at four in the morning. What, what, what do you say to that? Because running with an upset stomach all day is no fun. Like I said earlier, I'm a former offensive lineman, so I, I never lost my uh, love of food. Um, it's just now I do a lot more running and I 
I definitely eat differently, but I'm always thinking about food and planning my next meal and things like that. Um, and I actually kind of do a little bit of the opposite, Tony, where the day before I try to like really, and not, not only the day before, but now I've learned like even in a few days before to kind of try to really load up, um, especially if I'm going to do a long sustained effort like this and it's going to be hot, I try to get as much sodium into me as possible. Um, and then I actually, I try to eat a really big breakfast before the race as well. I try to get some of that, the egg, the carbohydrates, and then also some kind of the potatoes because, and that's kind of my go-to throughout the race is either potato chips or potatoes also, because um, they're easy to, digest, easy to digest, but you can get a lot of salt and a lot of nutrients in you. Good. What was your favorite part of the day? And what was your least favorite part of the day? Alana, why don't you go first as somebody who was actually right. out there for a sure. long time? How long were you out there for, by the way, Alana, as a volunteer? Um, we showed up around 11 a.m. and we packed out around 11 p.m., 11.30, yeah, when the, the sweeps came through. Right. So it was a long day, but incredibly worth it. Um, so my favorite part was really seeing people rally, you know, they might be coming, they might be coming into the aid station feeling a little depleted, but seeing them kind of gather themselves and help them do that. And then see them head out strong to the next, next part of their journey. Uh, least favorite part was hearing about the drops for the day because it was that humidity really did take a toll on people. So it was, um, it's sad for me to hear like how many people succumb to it, but. So, uh, my low light was probably just before North Lakes, where my stomach all of a sudden decided it wasn't in a happy place. Um, fortunately, it just lasted for all of about so 15 minutes, but that was probably the low light. And then, uh, so the other bit was uh, maybe like the just before the last aid station, where I kept on thinking, I was like, oh, I'm almost there, almost there. And it was like time kind of, kind of ground to a halt almost. Um, but then favorite point was definitely uh, something like the technical terrain. I just like loved kind of like coming around the corner and being like, oh, I have to scramble up that. And we're sort of 30 or 40 miles in. It was just uh, kind of like, oh, this is, yeah, like a really cool course, taking in some really uh, amazing bits of cat skills. And so that was, that was definitely a highlight. Yeah. And for me, kind of my uh, low light turned into the highlight because like I said, the, the low light for me was definitely the devil's path. It just completely crushed my soul. And I've been on the devil's path quite a few times. Um, and I've done all those peaks um, more than once. And I, but I've never hit it with 30 plus miles on my legs, obviously. And um, just like at literally going up like twin planning, okay, I'm going to get to the summit. I'm going to text my wife and she's going to come pick me up in Mancalo and then going up plateau. And I'm like, okay, I made it through here, but I'm going to get to silver hollow. I think Mindy Gallo is going to be there so she can drive me to the finish. And then, um, but then like that kind of turned into my highlight because that my wife, um, as she sent me a text and she just said, you're not quitting. Um, and so like just pushing through that, and definitely the highlight was the finish. Like, I've, I've never, like I said, I ran Rock the Ridge 50 miler 
but even though this is a 50 miler, it took me twice as long to do Manitou than Rock the Ridge. Um, so like, it's not a normal, not a normal 50 mile race. Um, and like, I knew it was going to be hard, but didn't know it was going to be that hard. I would say my least favorite part is undoubtedly Catskill High Peak. It's just rubbish. Mm. And um, next time I do this, because I think there will be a next time, I'm not going to honor it by trying to run any of it. I'm going to walk it because it doesn't deserve anything better. And I'm going to conserve all energy and get out of that muddy cesspit. And then, oddly, my most favorite part was also the hardest. I mean, I like climbing and I really enjoyed climbing the devil's path. And every time I went up, I was I was waiting for my legs to give up on me and they wouldn't. And that's an enormous satisfaction to know that you know, when you're climbing Sugarloaf, the only part I had to stop on all day is sort of involuntary was uh, Plateau, despite just coming through Mink Hollow, despite the Silver Yeti and all, all of that. You know, I had to catch my breath, I think, twice on the way up Plateau, but it wasn't, it wasn't a sense of defeat. It was just like, hey, I've got nothing to prove here. The Devil's Path downhill parts, particularly coming off Twin and Sugarloaf, were the most treacherous I've ever, ever known them. I do actually have uh, the, 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 the cuts on my leg to prove it. I struggled with that downhill, and I thought I was in love with my particular shoes. But I think it does bring back the subject of poles and footwear. How important were your, were your, were your shoes for trying to grip onto something on what was really slippery, wet rock the whole way? So I had a pair of Innovates. Uh, they were reasonably good. I wouldn't necessarily say they were fantastic. Um, I was still slipping and sliding around a, uh, a bit, but um, yeah, they, they did a pretty good job. I, uh, yeah, I hadn't been down anything recently that was kind of like that technical and slippy. Um, to kind of like really compare against. And yeah, I've just kind of found those shoes like fit my feet really nicely. So, I mean, even if they were terrible on the rock, I'd probably still stick with them. I don't know if any shoe grip would have worked on the devil's path this year. Um, Cause it seemed like the rocks were covered in ice or something. Um, but I've been kind of searching for a shoe that has that Vibram mega grip, because I think that's probably the stickiest um, shoe sole out there. And from wearing previous shoes with them, that seems to work the best on like those really technical rocky sections. And I really like ultras. Unfortunately, they only put them on, I think, like the Olympus, which for me is a little bit too high of a uh, stack height for really technical stuff like that. Um, I know people that wear speed goats with the Vibram on them and they love it. But again, I seem to roll my ankle a ton of times if I have a shoe with a ton of cushion on it on technical stuff like that. So I love the Lone Peaks because of the, the way they feel on my feet. I just wish that Ultra would put the Vibram Mega Grip on those. If it, if it helps, I was running in Hoka's, Hoka 11's Evo Jaws, which I bought a few months ago because I was actually getting very frustrated with what uh, Innovate have been doing with their shoes and changing them. They apparently have the Vibram on the surface, but they were slipping all over the place. I mean, I think they do have the Vibram lugs and they just could not grip. So um, that was that was a problem for me. That was a big, big problem for me. Uh, I don't know that there was a shoe that could be worn, but uh, Alana, you, you, you're you out most years at uh, Escarpment and Cat's Tail. 
and you've done magnitudes before. What what do you favor? And particularly how what do you what do you recommend for wet, slippery rock like the Catskills will give you on a humid day? I usually wear Saucony Peregrines, which aren't like the fanciest and top of the line trail shoes, but they fit my feet and are comfortable. So um, in terms of grippiness, they're just middle of the road, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> but I am a creature of habit. I find something that feels good on my feet and I just kind of roll with it and um, sometimes go skating on them as well. <laughs> I'm sure I would have been skating on Manitou's this year. The importance of headlamps, good headlamps. The fact is, if you can't get out in daytime, which you may have just done, Benno, if you can't get out in daytime, you really slow down at nighttime. And one cannot under, underestimate the importance of a really strong headlamp. Did, did you get out in, uh, in daylight, Benno? No, unfortunately not. I, uh, I kept on thinking I was like really close, and then all of a sudden, sun disappeared, and I was like, nope could be dark finish um so i had a i picked up a uh waist belt light called uh by light belt um it's a little bit cheaper than some of the other ones and uh it works straight it was really really good i uh kind of provided like some nice shadows with the rocks and um also then you could like take a sneaky peek behind without anyone seeing your head torch and see if anyone was catching up with you not that i'm particularly competitive <laughs> but uh or, oh, obviously you know, anywhere not. near the front, but I noticed Max when you overtook me, and I was just putting on my headlamp. Yours was like felt like three times more powerful than mine. Yeah, um, and actually, it's sitting right here because I just charged it. But um, I got one of these. It's the Petzl Ico Core, I think it's called, and um, kind of turned into a little bit of a gear junkie. I love reading about gear and all that kind of stuff, and I read about this one. And the, the, um, the band, I guess you would call it, is like super light and it really fits your head and it didn't move around at all. And it has three different modes and the high mode, which supposedly lasts four hours is like comically bright. I actually literally laughed when I turned it on the first time because it's like you're wearing a car headlamp on your head. Um, but the middle setting lasts, I think, 10 hours. And that's what I was using during Manitou. And it was, it was great. I like, I could see everything. Um, and I also particularly like it cause it has a rechargeable um, battery pack, but then in my like a little, little emergency kit in my uh, running vest, it can also run off of AAA batteries. So if it happened to run out, you can swap them out quick um, and not have to worry about having to like recharge anything quick or have a completely separate battery pack. So but yeah, the headlamp definitely makes a huge difference, especially in that last section going down to Warner Creek because um, the trail is not that doesn't get as much use and it's kind of overgrown and there's hidden rocks and you go through the stream section. It's obviously extremely slippery. So it definitely made a huge difference. Yeah, the, guy, the other guy we were with went for a swim at that point, didn't he? Yeah, he lost his headlamp in the creek. And I because I was following him and I was like, why is he holding a flashlight in his hand? And I heard him say at the finish that he fell in the creek and he, he lost his headlamp in the creek and he luckily had a flashlight with him. If he told, oh. if he told me, I'd have happily looked for it because I actually like keeping my feet in the water for about three or four yeah. minutes. It's actually like I take a little food break there and just let my legs cool off like you know, knee deep in the creek. So yeah, I didn't I did realize the same thing. I did see him go for the swim, though. Um, mm -hmm. 
Did you get out in daylight, Alana, when you did it a couple of years back? I didn't. I had to don the headlamp um, right around the Tremper fire tower. So needed it to get down the road. But right. I, uh, I totally second having a good headlamp being important, even on that kind of relatively tame part of the trail. My headlamp was kind of on the fritz and it was driving me crazy. It definitely slowed me down. So uh, thank goodness that the man who had the her lot who went for a swim and lost his headlamp had a, a backup yeah if i did something half right i have two headlamps that uh both black diamonds that both seem to be equally middle of the range and i wore one and carried the other one in my hand so i i i was able it it didn't do much for my balance unfortunately but it meant that i could see where i was going and see further ahead if i'd only had the one lamp i think i'd have been in trouble um and as far as the way I got through three, four years ago, I think it's because I was with somebody else who had a stronger headlamp and I was showing them the course. So they would kind of lighten the road for me from behind or in front. Um, final point, maybe second, third wins. How often does that come into a race like this or indeed any kind of ultra? Alana, you're nodding your head. <laughs> like fifth wins sometimes. Uh, no, definitely. You're going to... You're going to hit your low spots and you just have to kind of keep your head in the game and and realize that it's all part of trail running and ultra running that, you know, you you nurse yourself back together and the chances are you're going to be able to to get back out there strong again. But you just have to keep mentally tough and and optimistic about it. There's definitely plenty of time to to uh, pull yourself back around when you're out there for as long as we are. <laughs> Max, you definitely had a second uh, wind, if not a third one. It's something. I had never, I had never experienced something like that where I had been so, so, so low for so long. And then all of a sudden it was like a 180 and I had my legs back. Um, and like, I obviously didn't feel fresh, but I could run a sustainable pace. Um, and I was able to finish those last, 10 miles or so going between hiking the uphills, running the downhills and the flats again, where before that I couldn't run the flats or even the downs. I was just walking everything. So, And, and Benno, other than your, your, your stomach issue at North South Lake, I, it looked like you were pretty consistent, but you've done some other hard events. So that second, third, fourth, fifth wind, how often have you gone through that? And how much of this is about the mental strength versus the physical strength? Uh, yeah, the, uh, the mental piece definitely is like a, a big factor. Um, I did a hundred miler, uh, kind of a couple of years ago now. And I think the, I, I was doing really well. And then I think the last marathon, I pretty much walked the entire thing because, uh, yeah, I, I just kind of blew up and there wasn't really much left. I think it's kind of like natural for it to happen at some point. And then it's just trying to work out maybe beforehand, have looking at a little bit of a strategy and thinking, Right. I know this will probably happen. If it happens, I'm just going to have like a, a bite to eat and a drink. I always like to keep moving. So, you know, if it's sort of just eating on the go, um, I think it's like a good strategy to kind of kind of reboot your mind and get back into it. Would you do this again? Would you do Manitou's again? Um, I can do it had, again. <laughs> yeah. And if you had asked me during the race, my answer was 100% no, but um, definitely kicking the idea around in my head now so it's funny how that changed like talk about second wins i was like 
thinking I'm never doing another ultra again. This is stupid. Why do people do this? This is awful. And then you finish the next day. You're like, okay, that wasn't that bad. So um, I, I can't wait to do it again. I, um, I had this similar experience to Max while I was doing it. And I think I, I cried at the finish and said, okay, that was, that was fun and um, done. Uh, but I, I hope to sign up again for next year. <laughs> no, I, uh, I loved it. I would, I would definitely do it again. And it's, uh, I mean, chatting to you guys and other people on the course has also sort of inspired some other races along the way. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely be looking for something else in the future. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking part. It's my hope that people who are listening to this who haven't done ultras will understand some of the uh, the ups and the downs, both literally and metaphorically, and might be inclined to go out and take something on. As we referenced with Mike, maybe better off starting with the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon than jumping into Manitou's. But there's always something out there that you can up your game, see what you're capable of. And knowing that there are people out there, including the wonderful volunteers, who will make sure you get home alive in one piece, even if it's not your day so thank you everyone i will see you out there soon looks like we all recovered pretty well including the yeti If you are by now desperate to know what the Yeti looked like at the Silver Hollow Aid Station, well, guess what? I took my phone with me. I took photos as I went because I figured, hey, I'm not going to win the race this year, <laughs> as I wouldn't any year. And I got a selfie with the Yeti and another shot coming into that aid station. So just go to the One Step Beyond podcast Instagram feed and you'll be able to see those. And uh, as far as the interview with Cheryl Wheeler goes, the long one that uh, Max referred to earlier, it's on a show called Ultra Stories. It's episode 58. I've got a couple of other podcasts that could be really interesting for you if you're if you've got this far into the show, for sure. Uh, one of them is called Run to the Hills and episode 42 features Beth Pascal, Beth Pascal, I should say, who was the top finisher, the top female finisher at this year's Western States 100 miler, which is really like the top ultramarathon in the world. And she's a Brit. The hosts are Brits. She's also a pediatrician. You know, people have day jobs. And I love uh, this interview. It was done just before Western States. So we don't know how well she is about to do. And as with another show, which is called I'll Have Another with Lindsay Hine, episode 323. Yes, some of these shows have been around for years upon years, is with Tyler Green, who finished second uh, at Western States this year. And that's akin to finishing first because the first place uh, winner, Jim Wormsley, is kind of out of reach. Uh, his interview, I think, was after Western States, but he too offers some really good tips and tricks. And these are things that apply to everyday people just like you and me. And Tyler is a middle school teacher. So again, People have day jobs. These are not elite professional athletes, even though it should be said Beth is in the process of going for a year as a professional and seeing how she fares with it. All right. What else can I offer you here? 
There are some updates personal, but I want to keep the show under an hour. I will say that a group of us went out and did the Escarpment Trail run virtually, um, as was on offer this year. I did for once take the Zoom recorder with me, partly because I had someone with me going out for the very, very first time on this course. And there may be a show in it. If there is, it may be the next episode, or I may do something else just to give us a break from this particular routine and bring it up uh, a little later down the line. It's beautiful weather, it's summer, but you may be trapped indoors watching the Olympics, even if there's no crowd out there. And uh, I'm recording this while we're, I guess, five or six days into the Olympics. And just the other night, just as I was starting to work on this show, like really edit it, I watched the highlights of the male mountain bike race. I'd been told a 21-year-old Brit had won the gold, and I thought, let me go look for that. And watching it, I had a few thoughts. Primary among them was... And you thought mountain running was crazy? Wow, those guys are brave. But also, it really struck me watching this where the bikes go over some sort of vaguely similar terrain to a sort of uh, uh, a trail run. And I thought, is there any reason trail running shouldn't or couldn't be part of the Olympics? So I looked it up and in fact, cross-country running, to give the name we generally use for sort of shorter trails distances, was featured in 1912, 1920, and 1924. Remember, there were no Olympics in 1916. The world was at war. But unfortunately, it was abandoned after those 24 Paris Olympics when several runners dropped out due to not just the extreme heat, but fumes from a nearby plant. Well, surely it's 100 years later. Surely it's time has come around again. It just occurred to me, really, that if there's any sport that embodies the purest amateur aesthetic that the Olympics initially sought to promote, surely trail running is it. It seems like the most natural of all human activities. It's certainly the way man originally learned to fend for himself and travel at speed, both to catch prey and run away from being prey. It's a sport that in its modern sense, rarely offers prizes or awards worth the travel costs or the entry fees, but which nobody cares about those awards or prizes anyway, and which I really do hope, again, you gathered from the edited conversation that you heard, fosters a true sense of community, even as it is largely about the individual. And yes, I kind of copped that quote from Alana. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. We'll be back in a couple of weeks if all goes to plan, and uh, enjoy yourselves out there. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode was revealed in this nature by Noel Fletcher. The theme song One Step Beyond is by Madness, used with their permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can reach out to us at onestepbeyond at ijamming.net, I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G.net. You can also find us on all social media, just search One Step Beyond Podcast, and our website is buried over at acast.com. All these links will be supplied in the show notes. And if you are listening online, please know that you can subscribe and download on just about every podcast platform known to man. It's always great if you want to leave a positive review, and it's especially great if you want to reach out. Whatever you're doing in the world, peace. Peace.